Welcome to the Belt and Road podcast, where we cover the latest news, research, and analysis on China's growing presence in the developing world. I am your host, Eric Mikesterino, coming to you again today from Durham, North Carolina. Also, I always have to remind you that if you want the latest updates on the Belt and Road, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, where we update daily the latest news, research, and discussions happening and surrounding the Belt and Road Initiative. Follow us at Belt and Road Pod. I'm really, really excited for this episode today. It's been a long time coming. Longtime listeners of the show may remember the seventh episode where we featured Juliette Liu, uh, where she discussed her research on Chinese land investment in Laos. Juliette, is, who is currently a doctoral student at UC Berkeley's Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management, was such a vibrant voice with unique insights and wit to spare. After the episode's recording, I was able to keep in touch and talk about potential collaboration. After a lot of delays from me finishing graduate school and Juliet conducting more fieldwork, Juliet has now joined me and as a part of the Belt and Road podcast team. So today we will be co-hosting, but going forward, we'll switch off hosting duties in order to get more great discussions on the topics we care about published more regularly. Uh, you know, the Belt and Road podcast and our social media feeds are a complete passion project. And so it's such an honor and pleasure for me to have Juliet join us. Juliet, welcome back to the Belt and Road podcast. Thanks, Eric. I'm so excited to co-host with you. I think it's a great podcast and I'm excited for this project. Yeah, so I'm going to introduce a little bit. Um, we're going to speak with Ma Xinyue today, and we're talking a bit about um, the issue of debt and the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so many of the most salient questions about Belt and Road projects, including what their social and environmental impacts will be, how they're governed, and also what risks and opportunities they present for host countries, all of these things are kind of rooted in the question of how they're financed. Infrastructural projects specifically are the central focus of the Belt and Road, and across the world, whether in China, outside of China, or in other countries, infrastructure is often financed through debt, most commonly by governments, but also sometimes through private investment. Information around the financing of Belt and Road projects has until recently been very difficult to find, in part because many Belt and Road projects are new, and also partly due to the opacity of project negotiations. But there's been a growing focus on the financing of Belt and Road projects through debt, in part due to the publication of details on a few key projects, and in part as more comprehensive data on Belt and Road projects becomes newly available. As a result, the role of debt financing Belt and Road projects has become a focus for media, scholars, and political leaders' reflections on the initiative. And, and with this in mind, that's why we're so happy to also feature on the show today, as Juliet said, uh, Ma Xinyue. Ma Xinyue is the China Research and Project Leader at the terrific uh, Global Development Policy Center at Boston University. Ma Xinyue's most recent publication was featured on the always incredible Pandapod Dragon Claw blog and it's entitled Assessing China's Most Comprehensive Response to the Debt Trap, the Belt and Road Debt Sustainability Framework. Ma Xinyue, welcome to the Belt and Road Podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, so Xinyue, your article starts off by noting a dominant narrative surrounding the Belt and Road, which you describe as a politicized and moralizing tone of the debt trap diplomacy. Can you just give us a sense of where that narrative is coming from? Who's promoting it? Um, I would say this kind of narrative really only emerged over the past year and a half or so, basically after the event that the Hamantota port case in Sri Lanka, which was went into default after a government change and the port's management 
management and operations, and including the land rights of the port, was handed over to Chinese companies. And this case was very broadly referred to as a debt trap case, where China plotted this kind of a project where the country could be vulnerable to. To not being able to pay back the debt, so that China can hold sway of the country to have some political or economic influence over the country. So, and this kind of narrative, where the debt trap diplomacy、uh, was also frequently referred to as one of the criticisms for China, and we see it very frequently from politicians in speeches in the U.S., such as in some speeches.、Right. By Mike Pence and John Bolton, especially when America proposes this new international development finance cooperation, and the including the Africa, the Prosper Africa project, where China is often described as the rivalry that is not borrowing or engaging responsibly in these countries, and also there has been a lot of research trying to. Explain this kind of phenomenon and evaluate it. And even though this these cases could be singular cases, and even though many of the research really point out that probably their scenario is the worst case scenario, or they're really using、right. very rough non-official data, and which is a problem because we don't have enough transparent and official data here to really monitor this、right. phenomenon. And even though the reports may Come up with a very neutral conclusion, but in the end of the day, it is really frequently quoted as something that is a geopolitically game that China is playing. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting because the people that you're citing—I mean, you link to a barrage of accusations you say on China's use of debt trap diplomacy—and most of them are coming from Western countries. Which have themselves been embroiled in problems of creating deep indebtedness with developing countries historically, right? So I, I just thought that was、um, a great way that you opened the article. Yeah, it is true, but I mean, it is a problem, and it is not just from the Western countries, but also leading to the concerns of the countries looking at this problem.、Mm-hmm. And I would say traditionally there has been criticisms of whoever that gives the debt has. The political rent over、right. the borrower, and most of the data that we see are reported by the borrower. So whoever that holds the debt would、mm-hmm. be kind of partly responsible to the problem. But I do feel it's pretty new that a lot of the criticisms are directed towards China, and it is to a lot of extent this is a development problem, a social problem. If we talk about where these debts are going to, what projects these debts are going to, but on the other hand, it is also、mm, very politically talked about and doesn't really help、um, how these projects could be developed and sustainably operated. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. The Chinese debt and the rise of Chinese debt is certainly a concern, but it's interesting framing it. Purely as a strategic motive, what that does to to help or think about the the expansion of Chinese debt for many of these lower income countries. Going back a bit and thinking about China's economy,、um, outside of a, a strategic narrative or strategic conducting debt traps to other countries, why is China eager to loan capital? At least according to your research. So I would say most basically and most directly, these loans or at least these development banks or funds are supposed or formalized to support Chinese business to go out and to lend to projects that 
um, Chinese companies are contracting, for example, or investing. And on the other hand, there is also this economic statecraft theory, which states that there is the state interest that influences where these finance go, um, whether it is strategic interest mm-hmm. or energy and economic security. But this would be based on a presumption that the state can effectively coordinate an effort to you know, direct where these finance is going. But many ministries and many state organizations are overseeing these financial institutions. So it is, this, is, this is one of the theories, but, and it makes sense from a macro point of view, but there are also, from a micro level, there is also this issue of companies which are seeking foreign reserves and trying to invest abroad. And looking at right. where the money comes from, it is, I would say, most of the outside investments of the Chinese development financial institutions are backed by the, the state administrative of foreign exchange. So basically the foreign reserves. That is, you can also understand it as mm-hmm. a way of managing China's massive U.S. dollar foreign reserves. So rather, mm-hmm. so besides investing in U.S. dollar bonds, etc., this is also one of the ways that the, the foreign reserves is managed. So I would say that's why China is eager to lend abroad. Right. So the Chinese government has a reason to be pushing investments abroad, partly to, to deal with their imbalance in, in foreign reserves. Mm-hmm. So you make this really great point in the bulk of your article about how what, what the actual terms are under which these Chinese loans are being established. And you note a number of them that are actually below market interest rates that are, they're working in developing countries, which are fi- more financially vulnerable and volatile. Um, and you talk about how this actually constitutes a significant financial risk for Chinese lenders. So can you talk a little bit more about um, how Chinese lending, is, is that something that actually contrasts between Chinese lending and other countries that are lending? Um, and what does that mean for the countries that they're lending money to? Mm. I would say, yes, there are low interest loans from the, uh, from the development finance institutions of China. And by principle, they do lead with a market-led, low profit margin and mid to long-term investment strategy. So that is different from most commercial finance. Uh, most of the mm. money are going to projects that probably are not so attractive to commercial finance in very large-scale development projects, for example. But I would say the loan, the low interest rate loans are actually a small portion of um, all the loans that China does. So the main portion is still right. regular commercial loans. And the rates of the Chinese finance institutions are not necessarily lower than the market rate in the advanced economies, um, but probably higher than some of um, the situations in the emerging markets in developing countries. So it depends um, who you depend, who you compare it with. Right. You make a good comparison between Deutsche Bank and and some of the Chinese loans that were happening in the same countries. I mm. think. So that's between the commercial loans and. Um, and this okay, Chinese yeah. policy loans. Um, but there is also right. um, a lot of comparison between the other development finance, the multilateral ones, and other national development finance lenders with China. So basically, they all, to a great extent, base their terms of the loans on their the situations of their market, their, their capital market. So 
probably in many of the cases, the Chinese loans are not so competitive against the Western ones. But in many of the markets where they do not get the loans, where the risk is considered too high for a lot of the mature investors, then China comes in. So in in a sense, right. um, the good projects or the better markets are already taken. <laughs> um, and then China as a latecomer. Right. So naturally goes to those maybe countries that are more vulnerable and have more risky situations. Oh, I just, I hear that argument in the natural resource extraction sector too, that, you know, Chinese actors will say, well, we have to resort to the more contentious projects or the more difficult places to work because the easier places to extract minerals or, or other types of resources are taken yeah. already. So it sounds really similar to this, this financial situation. But I think I also hmm. looked at it in the article. So within this pool of BRI countries, Still, the countries that are really risky in the debt sustainability terms get as much loans as the other countries. So mm. China is also not completely risk-seeking, but there is this general tendency, I would say, um, comparing with the, the, the more mature lenders, I would say. We know that China has received heavy criticism for its lending practices, uh, either rightly or wrongly. A lot of it has to do with the debt sustainability most recently, in response at the uh, the most recent Belt and Road Forum, China put out a new debt sustainability framework. What within your article you go into what this debt sustainability framework says on paper? But if you can, can you explain a little bit what it says on paper, but also on an institutional level, how or if this sustainability framework could be put into practice? For the second part of the question, I'm not sure whether I can answer, but. Basically, on paper, it is very similar to the World Bank IMF, the Sustainability Assist mm. Assessment Framework, um, for the lower-income countries. So the BRI, the Sustainability Framework, is also for the lower-income countries in the BRI. So I think the, mo the structure is basically the same, but just the Chinese document does not have that much of a technical detail. And the only one additional thing is that it includes an additional um, new borrowing shock stress test that takes mm. into account the potential borrowing that might come in. So coming back to what it looks on paper is basically the framework gives a methodology of assessing the debt carrying capacity of a country, and then it assigns debt thresholds for the different countries according to um, their debt carrying capacity. And the thresholds are pretty nuanced and they there are, you know, there are measurements for different measures of debt, for example, the external debt, public debt, etc. And then it does base projection and stress test and counting in um, staff estimates and um, all those, all the, what, what do you call it, the realistic factors, and then gives right. a risk rating to the country's public balance sheet. So evaluating whether there is a high risk or medium or low risk of debt default. And then it is basically a tool for countries to, to discuss with IMF where their debt capacity is, and also something for the lenders to look at when they 
you know, lend to countries. And this framework that China did with the BRI is very similar to that one. So is the debt sustainability framework, is it kind of just duplicating? I mean, I what I would understand is that there are already sets of ratings that the IMF and World Bank put out on most countries that China is lending to. So is this China's effort to make a parallel system or, or does it depart from kind of globally available assessments of that, of that form? Um, I would say since the structure is basically totally the same, I, I wouldn't right. call it it's trying to establish a parallel one because, you know, all the evaluations are there and all the data are already there. Right. Um, so and they only probably add one more indicator that counts into it. So the, the resources is available, but that I guess maybe institutionally China didn't really put it out as something that financiers should look at. So, mm, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. How do you see this development of maybe a more cautious capital uh, coming from the Chinese state with, with the adopt state debt sustainability framework? You know, do you see it maybe more as uh, lessons learned or uh, reactions to you know six years of the Belt and Road, or do you see it purely as a response to the bad PR that Chinese lending projects uh, have gotten? I would say the cautious capital trend could be a standalone trend besides the debt sustainability framework. So um, we have seen it probably since 2017. The general trend of um, external lending has been dropping after continuous growth since maybe even before the announcement of the BRI initiative. And that could be contributed to a lot of things. The global economic situation and the financial markets, especially the performances of the emerging markets is changing. And China is tightening its um, financial regulations and capital control. Um, And a lot of um, policy regulations has been issued by the, the CBRC. And some of them are specifically for policy banks and export import banks. So there is a lot of scrutiny already going on. And this scrutiny can be, from a China perspective, just a reaction to the, the, the risks of the current portfolio because um, we have talked about general portfolio of Chinese lendings are in these more vulnerable sectors and more risky areas. Right. So there is already a lot to manage and China's foreign reserves is dropping. And then I would mm-hmm. say in parallel with all these criticisms that China is getting, there is also a lot of internal challenges that China is trying to tackle and also probably learning many of the lessons. So I would say the size of a market is just there. And the banks talk a lot mm-hmm. about you know, making projects that are investing in projects that are both commercially viable and developed and being development projects. So this kind of projects right. are not so prevalent everywhere. They're also having problems right. finding good enough projects. I would say both internal and external forces have led to this situation. And I would say that that sustainability framework is probably a specific or a wonky response to the debt trap policy criticisms. But in general, it right. looks like a really high level framework to me and it is because it does not direct 
you know, how each project or each loan should go. It's basically looking at countries, right. looking at whether this country has a high risk or an okay risk for you to manage. And you can count in this potential project that you're doing. But, but ultimately, each project comparing with the debt portfolio of a country is going to be small. So, yeah. I would say it's a yeah. it's a mixture and the and the trend and I would mm-hmm. say the the publication of the framework is not like a turning point of the trend. Right, not going to totally change how Chinese companies are conducting and financing projects, but also a minor change. Right. I'm interested in what you think about the future of well of the problem and accusations of debt trap diplomacy. I mean, I'm wondering about how you think this all relates to kind of the future, the broader future of Belt and Road Initiative. I mean. We've talked about how, you know, there's obviously a push within China to utilize and lend out their their foreign reserves. And at the same time, there's been a slowdown in the Chinese economy. And do you see the push to kind of lend to riskier countries or to invest in projects that aren't insured to be high performing? Do you think that that kind of risk, that push is, is going to diminish now that the Chinese economy is slowing down? Or do you, do you see it? Do you think it will be something that just keeps growing? Um, I do see this trend so far. I would say this mm-hmm. is, on the other hand, also diminishing some of the characteristics of China's development finance, as we have seen over the years. Basically, there has been indeed a lot of problems because it is operating in these kinds of regions where probably there is not enough state regulation and governance and China, the the development finance institutions from China themselves also don't have high enough standards and safeguards that, you know, counter these situations. So there has been a lot of problems. So so I would say besides the the debt sustainability framework, um, there is a lot to be done. So um, and there is also a great need and probably better financing models or uh, there is still a great need for better financing practices in the countries that really need it, um, where there is large inequality problems and social and environmental problems that need the development finance ex- executed in a sustainable and inclusive way. So I would say mm-hmm. the demand is still there and China is trying to be more cautious, both in terms of their practice and just giving out loans themselves. So that is going to be a challenge, I would say, for development in general, but also a framework is not going to be enough. So um, there is a lot to be done. And I know that they, they continue to seek for projects. So it is hard to say, I would say. Very true. Masinye, thank you so much. Would you be able to stick around for recommendations? Mm-hmm, for sure. You've been listening to the Belt and Road podcast. Again, remember, we uh, update our Twitter and Facebook feed every day at Belt and Road Pod. So please follow us there. Also, wherever uh, this is a labor of love for both I and now Juliet. Uh, and every time we get a five-star rating, whether it be on the iTunes Store or on Spotify, it puts us up the rankings and it gets us to a lot wider audience. And we certainly love that. So, uh, Xinyue, do you have a recommendation for our listeners today? Yes, I think very relevant to the topic that we talked about today, and the debt financing or the different forms of financing um, in development from China. There is several articles um, published by Mu Yangchen 
she is a, she she used to be a fellow at the、mm. GDP Center, and she is now、uh, assistant professor at the School of International Studies at Peking University.、Um, so、um, there is a working paper that she published with us called "Official Aid or Export Credit: China's Policy Banks and the Reshaping of Development Finance." And she also has a more recent piece called "State Actors Market Games: Credit Guarantees and the Funding of China of China Development Bank." So these are very original work. I would say probably the best that talks about these Chinese development finance institutions from a very nuanced and comparative point of view. She compares these Chinese development finance institutions with the corresponding. Counterparts of Germany and Japan, so basically KFW and JBIC. So、mm. I think it's a really good read, and I highly recommend it. This looks great. Yeah,、I'm、definitely gonna have to read that. Juliet, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Yeah, my recommendation is not Belt and Road related, but somewhat. I've been reading The Glass Palace by Amitav Ghosh. It's a novel about Burmese and Indian characters whose lives lives kind of revolve around. Resource extraction industries、um, during the colonial era in in both Burma and India, and it features logging, also my favorite global resource, rubber, and it touches on themes of gender, the emergence of class consciousness, and the relationship between political power and then natural resource exploitation. Amitav Ghosh is also just awesome because in 2001 he refused the best book prize for the Commonwealth Foundation. Because he resented being categorized as a Commonwealth writer and also objected to the fact that. Only works considered for the prize are written in English. So he's、um, he is a anti-colonial crusader and a really wonderful writer. I've been enjoying it a lot. So check that out. That, that's great. I'll certainly、uh, check that out as well. For my recommendations today, so the the piece in which、uh, we featured with Shinyue was on the always wonderful Pandapod Dragon Claw blog.、Uh, not only checking out that blog, but、uh, following three of the founders of that blog on Twitter. So Ma Tianjie at TJ Ma underscore Beijing,、uh, Calvin Quek. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly at Clear Roads, and Tom Baxter. At Tom Baxter seventeen, I get so much of my information from them, and they they have、uh, wonderful tweeting, wonderful stories, and original reporting on the nexus of China and the environment、uh, almost daily.、Uh, and secondly, Lizzo,、uh, which is an artist I'm very、uh, very new to finding, although I'm late to the party. On my Facebook feed, somebody <laughs>、uh, posted her Tiny Desk concert. Uh, NPR does these tiny desk concerts, which I'm usually not the biggest fan of. But her stage presence was just wild.、Uh, something you know, once seems like a once、yeah. in a generation type star, wonderfully blending funk and gospel and and, and hip hop together, and it was just wildly entertaining. So Lizzo's tiny desk concert. Cool. Yeah, she's a force <laughs> to be reckoned with. Well, Mashine, thank you again for joining us in the Belt and Road podcast. So great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And Julia. I'm so excited that we're going to be extending the people and people bonds together throughout the Belt and Road through this podcast. Yeah, starting from the、That's、east、right. to the west coast, right? <laughs>